0: Well, as we come to God's Word this morning, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. That is the portion that Stuart read to us a little bit earlier. And let's keep our Bibles open before us as we consider God's Word to us this morning. And I'm going to start by asking for your permission this morning to to start my message by reading the opening paragraph of a sermon that was preached by George Whitfield in 1772. And he says this, When we consider how heinous and aggravating our offenses are in the sight of a just and holy God, that they bring down His wrath upon our heads and occasion us to live under His indignation. How ought we thereby to be deterred from evil, or at least engaged to study to repent thereof and not to commit the same again? But man is so thoughtless of an eternal state and has so little consideration of the welfare of his immortal soul that he can sin without any thought that he must give an account of his actions at the judgment day or if he at times has any reflection on his behavior, they do not drive him to true repentance. He may, for a short time, refrain from falling into some gross sins which he had lately committed. But then, when the temptation comes again with power, he is carried away with lust. And he thus goes on promising and resolving, and in breaking both his resolutions and his promises, as fast almost As he made them. This is highly offensive to God. It is mocking of him. My brethren, when grace is given us to repent truly, we shall turn wholly unto God. And let me beseech you to repent of your sins, for the time is hastening when you will have neither time nor call to repent. There is none in the grave where we are going. But do not be afraid, for God often receives the greatest sinner to mercy through the merits of Christ Jesus. This magnifies the riches of his free grace and should be an encouragement for you who are great and notorious sinners to repent. For he shall have mercy upon you if you, through Christ, return to him. Reading the sermon of George Whitfield challenged me personally, not only in its content, but in the way he preached on this topic of repentance. And it is no wonder that he was used by God as one of the, the greatest evangelists in church history to bring about one of the most widespread and lasting true revivals in the Great Awakening. You see... George Whitfield did not mince his words. He did not try to, to cloak the, the realities of our sin and our need for repentance in soft platitudes and entertaining stories or to, to hide the truth of the gospel behind a kind of a layer of motivational speeches of self-improvement. No, following on from his introduction, which I've just read, he went on to say that because no word is more mistaken in our understanding as Christians than that of repentance, he says, I will show you, number one, what the nature of true repentance is. Number two, to consider the several parts and causes of repentance. Number three, I'll give you some reasons why repentance is necessary for salvation. And number four, I will exhort you high and low, rich and poor, one with another to strive after repentance. And then he went on to preach for over an hour to thousands of people at a time, and God used this preaching of the word in a mighty way to draw sinners to salvation. Well, as I was considering what George Whitfield said, I asked myself the same question. Do we as Christians in the 21st century, do we really understand this word repentance in the church today? Do we preach and teach repentance as a fundamental part of what it means to become a Christian and to remain a Christian? Are we in any less need 250 years later to understand what God's word says to us about repentance? I don't think so. So that is the theme then of this morning's message as we come to consider another one of Jesus' parables read to us from Luke chapter 13. And so based on this portion of scripture before us, I'm going to take my cue from George Whitfield, and I'm going to give you the the structure of of our sermon, of the message in advance. And we're going to see this morning, number one, the universal need For true repentance. That's verses 1 to 5. Then we're going to see, secondly, God's expectation of repentance in verse 6. Thirdly, God's judgment against unrepentance in verse 7. And then, finally, the appeal that now is our season to repent, verse 8 and 9. So let's start then with the universal need for repentance, verses 1 to 5. These verses set the scene uh, for the theme of the parable which Jesus is going to tell in verses 6 to 9. And so we, we need to spend a few minutes in these introductory verses before we move on to the parable. Otherwise, we are going to misunderstand uh, both the purpose and the point of the parable. And the, the clear thrust of what Jesus is trying to show us in these verses is that there is a universal need for every individual on the planet to repent. And if we do not repent, we will perish. Now the situation we find in verse 1, it was all over the news. Pilate, the the Roman governor, had his soldiers enter into the temple where some Jews from, from Galilee were busy offering their sacrifices to God. And and these soldiers had come in and struck these people down, and their blood mingled with the blood of the sin offering which they were making, thereby defiling both the sacrifice and the temple. This was a, a shocking incident. People being massacred to death in church while they were busy carrying out their religious duties. But what is not so obvious until we, we see Jesus' response is that the people who brought Jesus this news did so with a, with a spirit of self-righteousness and pride in their hearts. They, they were not reporting to Jesus the absolute tragedy of this event. No, they came to Jesus with a, a kind of judgmentalism Which probably went something like this, Rabbi Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans who were murdered in the temple and their blood was was mingled with the blood of the sacrifice? They must have done something terrible to bring God's judgment on them in this way now before we judge them in their judgmentalism we must recognize that we are often prone to to think in the same kind of way when when bad things happen to other people or maybe even when bad things happen to us don't we we are quick quick to assume that those people must have done something wrong to to deserve whatever disaster fell upon them perhaps it's a drought or Disease or fires or earthquakes or violence or looting. And we happen in, in that incident to remain unaffected. And we wonder, wonder what they did to bring this upon themselves. Now, you may be like the Jews of Jesus' day, and, and you know your Bible well, and you say, hang on, Clinton, doesn't the Bible actually teach that God will bring judgment on those who are sinful and idolatrous? For example, in, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6, we read, "...therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your face from all your abominations." For any one of the house of Israel or strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, says God, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself and I will set my face against that man and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And so we see from this and, and many other passages in scripture that, that God is a holy God. He's a God of justice. He's a righteous judge. And he will judge those who do not repent, especially those who hide their sinful, unrepentant hearts behind a veil of spirituality, behind a veil of religiosity. And so they say, tell us, Jesus, what did these people do which brought God's judgment on them in this way? Give us the juicy details, Jesus, of what they did. Now, the response of Jesus is very interesting, for he does not get drawn into their curiosity or implied speculation. Instead, Jesus turns the question back on themselves in order to expose their hearts. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than So Jesus not only takes this incident of this gruesome murder in the temple, but he throws in another example in the mix. He, he speaks of a, a terrible disaster, perhaps a, a natural disaster. It might have been caused by poor construction, or maybe there was an earth tremor. But there was a tower in Siloam which fell, and it killed 18 people. And so Jesus asks the same question. Do you think that those 18 people who died when the tower fell, do you think that they were worse sinners than anyone else in Jerusalem, including the people he was speaking to? No, says Jesus. Our job is not to figure out why certain people die so that we can self-righteously look down on them in judgment because we are still alive. As if to imply that, that they were bad, that they deserved that disaster, and we are good. No, says Jesus, the wages of sin is death. And so as you see people around you dying, what you need to understand is that unless you repent, you also will perish. This past week, a, a pastor friend uh, in the township context here in Johannesburg shared with us a, that a number of people had died in one of the streets in this township. Four funerals had been held in that street recently and he had thought and and prayed that this reality of death would have impacted the rest of the people in that street to consider their ways, to, to change their attitudes and their behavior. But to his sadness, they carried on as if nothing had happened. And I think this is why Jesus responds to these people the way he does. To confront them in the face of tragedy, in the face of death, with their own perishing if they do not repent. The point Jesus is making here is that everyone, everyone without exception, is a sinner and is in need of repentance. And if we do not repent of our sins, we too will perish. Let me give you a, a few verses from Scripture which help to kind of fill in the biblical picture, the biblical perspective on this doctrine of repentance. I'm going to take the first one from the Psalms. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He is bent. And readied his bow, he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Let's move into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A chapter later, Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. When we move out of the Gospels into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Peter said to them, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And so we could go on. The purpose of the Old Testament was to call the people of God to repentance. We see this specifically through the ministry of the prophets. The purpose of John the Baptist in preparing the way for the Messiah was to call people to repentance. The primary ministry and focus of Jesus on earth was to call people to repentance. And we see in the rest of the New Testament that the primary work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and beyond is to call people to repentance. All of Scripture makes it clear that without repentance there is no forgiveness of our sins. There is no hope of salvation. Every one of us stands condemned before a holy and a righteous God. And unless we repent, we too, Jesus says, will likewise perish. So that then is the first point that Jesus is making. You and I, we need to repent. And if we don't, we will perish we will not only just die physically at some point, but we will remain spiritually dead for all eternity. And we will spend an eternity under the eternal spiritual judgment and wrath of God. So after clearly having established this point in the first five verses, Jesus then moves on to, to tell the parable of this barren or fruitless fig tree. And so in the second place, we see God's expectation of repentance in verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And we can learn a lot about God here, for we see that the man in the parable represents God who planted a fig tree. He planted it in a vineyard or an an orchard in order to reap a harvest of fruit from it. This man did not come up to a fig tree that was just randomly growing in the felt and expect fruit. No, we are told that he had planted this tree in a place where it could be nurtured and, and cultivated and protected in order for that tree to produce a harvest. And so the immediate context here is clearly referring to the people of Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were God's fig tree. They had received the law of God. They had the prophets. They had the priestly service. They had the the sacrifices, the temple. God had given them a king to rule over them. All the covenant blessings of God had been given to his people Israel, but like Adulterous prostitutes, they had sold their souls to the gods around them. And so Jesus was clearly condemning the the religious hypocrisy of the, the Jewish leaders and all those who followed them. But what Jesus says to them in this original context still applies to us today. And I would argue even more so for we have received so much more blessing at the hand of God's grace. We, we live on this side of the cross. We've received the fullness of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have the, the full and complete revelation of God in His word. We have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We have the freedom of religion in this country. We have many faithful gospel preachers and and Bible teachers. We have more books which explain the truth about salvation and the gospel than ever before in history. You and I, no matter who we are, where we are, what background we come from, we have to admit, we have to acknowledge today that God has planted us in a vineyard of great freedom and privilege and blessing. We have an incredible access to the truth of the gospel. And so as God comes to us this morning, is he finding what he expects is there fruit? If he expected fruit from the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, how much more does he not expect fruit on your tree and mine today? But let's be a bit more specific about this fruit in the context of the parable. Is there the fruit of repentance? Notice too that God is not passive here in, in his expectation. He he comes. He seeks God has taken the initiative to, to create us in his image, to, to give us life and breath. And he's planted us in the vineyard of a, of a country which, which gives us freedom of religion. He's planted us in a church where we find ourselves today where, where the gospel is being preached. This is all God's doing. He's, he's caused our lines to fall in pleasant places. So even perhaps if, if you are, are tuning in our online service today because your life seems to be falling apart, even that is God's sovereign grace to you today. You are here, you, you're tuned in, you're watching the video, you're in his vineyard, and he's coming to you today and he's seeking fruit. What does he find on your tree and mine today? Does he find the fruit of repentance? Or as verse 6 says, does he simply find nothing? Well, in the third place, we see God's judgment against unrepentance in, in verse 7. When, when the landowner discovers that this fig tree which he planted and, and he nurtured and he protected for, for some time, three years, the, the normal time that was required for that tree to mature and produce fruit. And when he finds that there is no fruit, he's angry. He's angry and, and he says to the vine dresser, to the, the gardener, Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find nothing. None. So cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, this is not very popular stuff to preach on today. God's judgment, God's anger, God's wrath, God's hatred of sin. We, we are told these days, oh, you know, that's, that's so Old Testament. We live now in the New Testament era. God is a now, a, he's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. Don't, don't talk about judgment. Just rather tell people about Jesus and his love. Well, for starters, God is a God who never changes. God has always been a God of love and mercy and grace. But but let me ask you this, if that is your thinking this morning, who is telling this parable? Who is telling us about the anger and the imminent judgment of this God of wrath? It is none other than Jesus himself. And I think this is vital today that we perhaps need to reacquaint ourselves with the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but the one God of the whole Bible. He is a holy God. He is a righteous judge. He is the sovereign creator. He is the one who has planted our lives in the vineyard of this world where He has been working out all things for His glory and for our good. And so He is a God who calls us in mercy and grace and love to come to repentance, to come to faith in Him alone for salvation. This is the God of the Bible. But as we see from the parable there comes a time when God's patience with us does end when we come to be so set in our hearts against repenting and so often we might hear people quoting uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 to make the point that that God does not want anyone to perish and so they think therefore that that means that God will not judge the sinful but let's consider what 2 Peter 3, nine says. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Oh, how patient is our God. How incredibly patient is he And he is patient because he does not wish anyone to perish. That's true. But his holy will desires more than simply that no one should perish. His sovereign and righteous will desires that all should come to what? To repentance. This is the the higher will of God for his creatures. Ezekiel 18, 23 God says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and and not rather that he should turn from his ways, repent and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteous deeds and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, will he live? And the implied answer is, of course not. None of the righteous deeds that he has done will be remembered for the treachery, of which he is guilty and the sin that he has committed, for them he shall die. The high and the holy and the perfect will of God requires the repentance of sinners. This is the only way in which God's wrath against us, against our sin can be deflected onto Jesus Christ is when we as sinners repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so there comes a time in each of our lives where either we repent and we then bear the fruit of that repentance or God's patience runs out and we are cut down. We won't spend more time looking at this today, but but consider the seriousness of what Jesus says in verse 7. A fig tree in a vineyard which is not bearing fruit. What is it doing? It's wasting space. It's using up the ground for absolutely no purpose, for a fruitless tree has no purpose. What is Jesus saying to us then as God's fruit trees? Planted in his vineyard of grace and, and opportunity right here in Johannesburg or, or wherever you may be. What is Jesus saying to us if we are not bearing the fruit of repentance? Or well, we're just wasting space. We have no purpose. And so the time is coming when God will cut us down. So the final thing that I want us to see from this parable then is that now is the season to repent. We see that in verse 8 and 9. The, the vine dresser or the, the gardener in the parable is, is none other than Jesus Christ. And here we see his, his special office of, of priest, of the priestly mediator of his children. We read in verse 8, and he answered the man, sir, let it alone for this year also. And I'll dig around it and I'll, I'll put on manure. I'll fertilize it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So here in the person of Jesus Christ, the, the very one who is telling the story, we see God's divine plan of salvation unfolding. Jesus is telling us all, That the only reason that we are still alive and active is because we are being given a final season to repent. You are not alive today because you keep fit and you eat well and you stay healthy. You are not alive today because you are such a nice person. You are not alive today because you do such good deeds to others. You are not even alive today because you've had both your vaccination shots. No, the only reason you and I are still alive today is because God's patience is giving us a last season to repent. Now is the season to repent. Not tomorrow or next year. Not when you're older one day, but now. And I'm so grateful that COVID has reminded us all that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. I wonder how many of those on whom the tower in Siloam fell Or those who've died of COVID-19 in the past 18 months. How many of them thought that they would worry about getting right with God next week? You see, when we see death all around us, it's a warning from God himself which cries out to us, Unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. Each one of us is living in this final season of God's grace, God's cultivating, God's pruning and and fertilizing. But God comes and he expects fruit, the fruit of repentance. And so we are living in this final season of, of Christ's patience. And we are given this final opportunity to repent and to produce the fruit of repentance otherwise we will be cut down but there is a point and this parable makes that clear when god ceases to contend with the hardness and the unrepentance of our hearts matthew chapter 12 verse 41 The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. Romans 2 verse 4. Do you presume On the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard heart and and your impenitent heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The word of God is crying out to us this morning to see our desperate need to repent. To repent of our sins. To to turn to God for his forgiveness and salvation. Or else we will perish in our hardness and rebellion against God. So where does this leave you today? If you call yourself a Christian... If you can confirm that you have repented of your sins and you have trusted in Jesus for salvation. Well, I want you to know that this act of repentance, which brings us into a right relationship with God, is also the ongoing, continuing attitude of our lives by which we continue to walk in that relationship with God. The fruit of repentance is evidenced by a lifetime production of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Can I say that again? The fruit of repentance is, is evidenced, is seen by a lifetime production of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so if you are honest today... To recognize that the the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as listed for us in Galatians chapter 5, is is missing, or mostly missing, or largely missing in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If these things are not yours in increasing abundance, then it may well be that you have never truly Repented. So, what then, very practically, does it look like to repent? Well, George Whitfield speaks of, of three parts to true repentance. He says there is sorrow, there is hatred, and there is entire forsaking. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For godly grief, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow, worldly grief simply produces death. So the the first step in true repentance is sorrow, godly sorrow, or perhaps we could better say a God wid sorrow. A sorrow which, which comes not so much from realizing the consequences of our sins, but a sorrow which, which comes from realizing that, that we have sinned against and, and violated the holiness of God through our sinning. Our God is a righteous, holy judge who, as we read earlier, In the Psalms, he feels indignation every day because of our sin, and this should grieve us deeply. So the first practical dimension of true repentance is this Godward sorrow. As David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Secondly, hatred. A genuine heartfelt hatred of sin which literally repulses us. Our sin should make us sick. And this can only come from a a genuine heart of true repentance. a, A heart which has been transformed, made alive by the grace of God in the gospel. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common, says Paul in 2 Corinthians? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What, what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? What does a, a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Young people, listen to me today. As you look at pornography, as you, you dabble in premarital physical relationships of lust, you are playing games with God, and God will not be mocked. If there is not a hatred of sin in our hearts, then we have not truly really repented. And then finally, Whitfield says, "Where there is the fruit of repentance, there is an entire forsaking of sin. The, the evidence that we are truly born again, truly a child of the living God, will not only be seen in our sorrow to God or in our inward hatred of sin. These are primarily attitudes of the heart. They cannot always be seen. No, the fruit or the evidence of true repentance will be seen in our entire forsaking of sin. The act of killing, putting to death of those things which our old nature, the sinful nature once loved, once delighted in, but now our new nature hates it, repulses us. And so we put it away. We forsake it. And so if you think that you are a Christian today and you think that you are in fellowship with God, but you are walking in darkness You are lusting after the things of the flesh, even though you may not carry out all the desires of your heart. They are there. The lusts are there. The thoughts are there. The the murder, the adultery, the, the thieving, the stealing, it's there. Then you are a fruitless tree this morning, for there is no evidence of repentance in your life. Listen to what John says in 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we are liars and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. So as I close, I opened with the words of a sermon from George Whitfield. Let me close with the words from a modern day George Whitfield. His name is Paul Washer and he says these words. One of the greatest evidences that a person is truly a child of God is that they will be sensitive to the sin in their life and they will be led to repentance and confession of that sin. If you do not have a new relationship with sin, you do not have a new relationship with God. The greatest evidence that you are a Christian is the fact that right now you are in the word and God is pointing out your sin to you. We have assurance that we have come to know him, not just because at one time we repented, but because we are continuing to repent today. And it is not just that at one time we believed, but we are continuing to believe today. And it is not just that at one time we walked with Him, but that we are continuing to walk with Him today. God is calling us to examine ourselves in the light of His Word and to see if we are exhibiting the fruit of repentance in our lives. And if not then may we not delay, but right now to come and repent before God, to cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness, and to commit our whole lives to Jesus Christ, to live for Him and for His glory alone. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we bow the knee of humility and repentance before you. For there is not one of us who has not to some degree or another taken for granted the grace of God to us in the gospel, who has not in some way played games with you through the entertaining of the sin in our lives. So, Lord, we want to come individually and as couples, as families, and as a church, and we want to repent, repent of our sin before you. We know, Lord God, that you will not be mocked. And so we ask that you would forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us. Lord won't you by your Holy Spirit. Produce in us. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit. That will be the evidence. To all. That we truly are children of God. Won't you call us to walk in the light. As you are in the light. That we would forsake anything to do with the ways of darkness. That you would. Reawaken our consciences. Reveal to us even the sins that we do not realize we are committed because our hearts and our consciences are so hard. Oh, forgive us, we pray, Lord God. Draw us afresh to yourself. Sharpen our hearts and our minds to understand afresh the grace and the mercy and the love of the gardener, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is cultivating and nurturing us into repentance. And may you never, ever come and find on our tree nothing. But may we grow as your people here at Honeyridge in the abundant fruit of righteousness, the fruit of repentance. We pray this, that you may be glorified, that we may be effective ambassadors of Jesus Christ in Johannesburg and in our country and across the world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.